Well, during my two weeks, I had two weeks off these past two weeks, which was great and a huge blessing, and thank you for giving me that. And um, during that time, I did something I almost never do. I went back and I read a sermon that I had previously preached. Uh, The sermon was from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to chapter 5, verse 2. It was a sermon that I preached here at Ebenezer. And I preached that sermon here five and a half years ago. I was uh, brand new here. I had been here just maybe five or six months. I am thankful to say that upon reading that sermon, I still agree with myself. (laughs) I, I think that sermon is an accurate reflection of the content of that biblical passage, at least part of it. It's a big passage, and there's a lot of points, and it does not cover them all. But I think what it does cover... I continue to agree with that that's what the passage says. But I am saddened to say that I have not always lived up to the standard of that sermon. From the time I preached that sermon five and a half years ago until today, I have not always used my words in a way that honors Christ. I wish I I could say I had, but I haven't. I have not always used my words in a way that builds others up. I wish I have, but I haven't. And so reading that sermon was a chance for me to be reminded of what the Bible says about our words, the importance of our words, and how to use them to honor Christ and to bless others, and also to assess my own use of words and see ways where I can do better, see ways where I have fallen short. And that was extremely useful For me, it's good to revisit things that we have heard in the past and to see whether or not we're applying them or to see ways that we could do better. So that was useful for me, and I'm making the assumption uh, that it might be useful for others as well. I'm also making the assumption that if I couldn't remember the content of that sermon even though I wrote it, then probably no one here is going to remember it even if you were here five and a half years ago, the first time I preached it. So I'm going to preach from that text again. My three main points are going to be the same, because I do think those are the three main points. But, even though I'm keeping the same three points, I have changed some of the illustrations, uh, because they weren't that good. (laughs) And I've also shortened the sermon. (laughs) Because I've learned over time. So, um... Since I preached this sermon, um, the world, the whole world, has gone through what feels like an extremely difficult time for so many different reasons. So many different reasons. It's been a very hard historical period. It's the kind of period that will be written about in history books. Most of us wouldn't have chosen for the world to have to endure these challenges, but that is not a choice that was given to us. And so I, I, I was reminded, as I thought about that, I'm, I'm revisiting right now, I'm revisiting the Fellowship of the Ring, reading through those books again, and I'm right at the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring. And if you remember the beginning, Gandalf the wizard is explaining to Frodo uh, what's happening. He kind of like gives him a quick history lesson of all that's gone wrong in the world <laughs> and why things are so bad in the world. And then he explains to Frodo how Frodo has a role to play in setting things right. He has a special calling, a special role to fill in addressing 
all the darkness and evil that's in the world. And at one point, Frodo laments that he has to live in such a dark and dangerous time. He says this, he says, I wish it need not have happened in my time. And Gandalf replies and he says, so do I. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. And that is how it is with us. We didn't choose to live through difficult times, but we do choose how we respond. And a big part of how we respond to challenging circumstances has to do with our use of words, right? So often, how you respond, the, the response to your circumstances takes the form of words. So we'll use this as an opportunity to do a self-audit, to ask ourselves if we're using our words in the way that this passage in Ephesians says that we're supposed to use our words. So I'm going to read it, but before I even read it, I'm going to pray and ask for the Lord's help. Holy Father, thank you that we can um, gather around your table, and now we're, we're seated before the feast of your word. Um, and in some ways, I, it occurs to me that this is a meal of leftovers. We've had this meal before. We've eaten this meal before. Um, and now we're eating it again. And uh, leftovers can be good, uh, can be still nourishing and still tasty. And, and so I do pray that you'd help us to eat well again on this particular passage. Maybe help us to see things we didn't see before, or to be reminded of things that we did see before, but we have forgotten or to see ways to apply these lessons in new and fresh ways. I pray for your help and for your guidance. I do pray for conviction, but not condemnation. If there are areas where we see that we have fallen short, help us to know that, uh, but not feel shame or guilt or condemnation, to feel appropriate conviction, to feel forgiveness, and to feel empowering to move forward. In Christ's name, amen. All right, Ephesians 4, and starting towards the end in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore be imitators of God, as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering 
and a sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. I want to begin by reminding you of one of my favorite moments in history. I think I've, I think I've talked about this, this event a couple of times over the years. It's, it, you have to cast your mind back to the year 1904, 1905. There is a revival in Wales. This, this revival swept right through the country of Wales, and it just seemed to touch every church, every family in the whole country. Hundreds of thousands of people in that small country were impacted by the simple power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Welsh people, as you may know, love to sing. Right? They're just, they're, they are a culture that loves to gather and lift their voices in song. They have beautiful voices. They have beautiful songs. And so, during this time of revival, there was Christ-exalting music just echoing throughout the land of Wales. And one of the most famous and lasting hymns to come out of that revival, written during the revival, was written by a man named William Rees. It's translated into English. It's called Here is Love, still sung today. I know we've sung it here a few times. Every verse of that song is great, but the second verse of that song, I just feel like, is perfect. So I'm going to read a translation of that song for you. This is a more literal translation of the poem that that he wrote. It's not exactly the way we sing it in English, but it says this. On Calvary tore the fountains of the great deep. Broken were all the floodgates of the heavens, which were secure until then. Grace and love like a deluge pouring down together and pure justice with peace kissing a guilty world. So, The image there that he's painting is that on Calvary, as the Son of God died for our sins, the floodgates of heaven broke open, and grace and love and peace and justice just poured out of heaven onto earth like a a deluge. And in, in doing that, God kissed a guilty world. There are a lot of radical, life changing implications of being on the receiving end of the kiss of God. Right? There, are, there, are, there are thousands of sermons that could be preached on that. What, the implications of what it means to be kissed by God. What I'm preaching on this morning is how receiving the kiss of God should impact our words. We should speak differently because we've been kissed by God. So go back to Wales for a minute. There, there, there's this one story that came out of that revival that's always made me smile There's a mining town in Wales that was known for being a very hard place, a dark place, a sinful place. And when the revival hit town, lots of the miners came to faith in Christ. And what they found was that the mules that they learned, that they they used as pack mules in the mines, would no longer respond to the miners after they came to faith in Christ. And the problem was that the mules were only, had only been trained to respond to cursing and shouting and profanity. And so they didn't know how to respond when the men cleaned up their language and started speaking gently to them. So they had to retrain all the mules to respond to kind words because they hadn't heard kind words before. I like that story because it's a practical example of how the kiss of God impacts our words, right? When our hearts are changed by the power of the gospel, our words change too, inevitably. 
There is a Christian way to speak. And just to be clear, I'm not talking about that there are a list of certain words that we use and certain words that we don't use. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about how we use our words. I know it sounds kind of trivial to say it, but the fact is your words are the most powerful thing you possess. They are. When God created the world, he endowed words with an enormous amount of potential power, right? He himself created the universe through his words. That was his chosen medium to create. And Jesus Christ, his only son, is referred to as the word. There's a reason for that. Words are powerful. Jesus cured diseases, cast out demons with his words. He spoke those things. He taught God's truth with his words. He forgave people's sins with his words. Words have so much power, so much power, and that knife cuts both ways. Words have the power to do good. They also have incredible power to do harm. Think of the words of temptation whispered by the serpent, right? Not long after, Jesus, after God created the world with his words, there's the serpent using words to usher evil and death into the world through the lies that he spoke. Think of the scribes and the Pharisees who used their words to tell lies about Jesus. Think of the words that people used to mock Jesus as he hung on the cross to pay for the sins of the world. Or, just think of the last time someone used their words in a way that cut you personally. Just call it to mind. It hurts, right? It's powerful. It probably, there's, there's probably a deeper scar, a deeper word, wound, when you think about the last time someone used their words to hurt you than the last time you got physically hurt, right? It hurts. It hurts. In the same way that technology has the amazing potential for both good and bad, Right? Advances in medicine, advances in communication keep us health, healthy, keep us connected to each other. Right? And yet also, advances in technology greater, give us greater potential to harm each other. Right? Thanks to technology, we have more potential to hurt each other than ever before. It's the same with words. They have the potential to do incredible good and incredible harm. They can either be used to bless or to, or to curse, to build up, or to tear down, right? Words. All right, so how is this passage advocating that we use our words? Three ways, and these are, uh, these are the three points that I used from last time. This is the overlap now. Um, we are told to use our words truthfully. We are told to use our words peacefully. And we are told to use our words constructively. Okay? Truthfully, always, always, all of our words. And again, just to be honest, I'm not saying I always do this. I'm not saying I always have done this. But this is what the passage says, that we are to use our words truthfully, peacefully, and constructively. So let's just look at those. Verse 25, Paul tells us to put off falsehood and speak truthfully. And the reason he gives for the importance of speaking truthfully is that we are all members of one body. Right? The church is one body, one body with many different members, but all functioning as a unity. One thing. One thing. So think about that metaphor and why 
Paul appeals to it when he says it's so important to speak truthfully. Right? What happens if one part of the body can't trust what another part of the body is telling it? Right? That's, that's a problem. Right? If you think of the eye, if the eyes start seeing things that aren't there, right, hallucinating, and telling the body there's something there when it's not there, that's a problem for the body. The body, the brain can't trust the eyes anymore. That's a problem. Or, if, or, or, or think of leprosy. Why is leprosy so bad? Well, one of the problems is that the leper loses the sense of feeling in the limbs. Right? So the fingers touch the boiling water and those fingers lie and tell the brain, hey, this isn't hot, you're fine. And as a result, the body ends up tearing itself down because of the different members of the body can no longer trust each other. That's what Paul is saying happens in the church when we aren't truthful with each other. We end up not being able to trust each other. And when we're not able to trust each other, we self-destruct. We tear ourselves down. Now that would, of course, include outright lies that we might tell each other, but it would also include small deceptions that creep into relationships. This passage is saying, don't do that. It's bad for your own soul. It's bad for the health of the church, even if we practice tiny little deceptions. So when, it, when I say tiny little deceptions, let me give you an example. This is, when I do premarital counseling, I always tell the couple, and there are some couples in the room that can confirm this, I always tell them the most common lie that is told in marriage. There's one, by far, most common lie that is told in marriage, and it is this. I'm fine. That's it. Right? When someone asks you, how are you doing? To respond to that question by saying, I'm fine. If you're not, that's dishonest. That's a deception. Right? Now, now, I understand there's a question of timing and context, and sometimes when someone says, how's it going, that's really more of a greeting. Uh, they're not really asking you to pour out your soul right there. I get that. Uh, we don't have to spout out our, our deepest struggles every time someone asks, how's it going? But still, if it's really true that the church is a family, and that we are one body, then we have to commit to be honest with one another in all things, and that includes how we're doing. And if we're not doing well, or if we're needing care, or needing support, or just needing someone to listen to us, we should say that if that's the truth. Life is hard. Every life comes with a certain amount of emotional strain, and we should be checking in with one another and we should be making sure that everyone is doing okay, and we should be being honest with each other about how we're doing. It pains me a little bit to repeat those words that I said five years ago, because I didn't do that great on that point. About a year and a half ago, I got myself into a place where I was feeling emotionally and spiritually exhausted, and I just tried to ignore it. And I just tried to push through it. And I wasn't even honest with myself about how I was doing. And that's not good. And despite my failures, though, God was gracious, and, and you all were gracious enough to grant me a leave of absence. But in retrospect, a lot of that could have been avoided had I been more open and honest with myself and with others about how I was actually doing. All right, so that's the first guideline for our rules. Total truth. All the time, speak truthfully. Don't, don't, obviously, don't speak any outright lies, but also don't speak any little deceptions. Okay, 
That's rule number one. But that would be a little dangerous if that was the only guideline we had. Right? You get a room full of people who are all strongly opinionated, and you tell them that they need to be committed to speaking the truth and speaking their mind all the time, and you're going to have some problems. So that's where these next two guidelines come in. We need to use the power of words truthfully, but we also need to use the power of words peacefully. Right? Verses 26 and 27. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Notice that verse doesn't say never get angry. The fact is we're going to get angry. Right? You will get angry. Sometimes it'll be good anger for good reasons. In that case, your anger will be righteous because you're angry at the same things that God is angry at, things like injustice and oppression and unkindness. Those things should make us angry. Other times your anger will not be righteous, it'll be selfish. Right? You'll be angry because someone offended us or, or someone inconvenienced us or someone ignored us or because someone made a decision we don't like or, or because we're just having a bad day or whatever. In either case, whether your anger is justified or not, what the verse says is, do not sin in your anger, no matter what. No matter if you're angry for good reasons, angry for bad reasons, do not sin in your anger. And what is by far the most common way that we sin in our anger? With our words, right? An angry heart leads to angry words coming out of your mouth. Often, not always, but often. You think you're not being treated fairly, so you raise your voice and you shout. Your kids break the rules that you have so carefully and repeatedly explained to them, and so you lose it. Someone insults you or makes you angry somehow, and so you dash off a harsh email, try to put them in their place. Someone makes a decision you don't like, and so you subtly tear them down when you're talking about them, when they're not around. In each of those cases, the person who got angry might defend their actions and say, yeah, but what I said was true. All right, well, maybe what you said was true, but did you say it in a way that was promoting peace, or did you sin in your anger? So let's ask ourselves this morning, are we in the habit of speaking words or typing words in anger to coworkers, family members, members of this church? And then after, after you've asked yourself that question, here, let me encourage you to take an even braver step Ask someone else who knows you if they think that sometimes you're sinning in anger with your words. Ask someone else, how do my words sound to you? How does this email read to you? Because we all know that our voices sound different to ourselves than they sound to others, right? That's why it's embarrassing or awkward when you hear a recording of your own voice, right? Doesn't that make you uncomfortable? Doesn't that sound weird? You're like, I sound like that? What? Right? That's because we, we sound better when we're hearing ourselves from the inside than it sounds from the outside. That's what it's like for some people with their words, right? They don't even realize that they're speaking in anger. They don't even realize that they're emailing in anger. They don't realize that the words they're using and the way they're using them is causing re relational damage to the people around them. So ask someone else who knows you if this command about not sinning in your anger with your words applies to you, and if you get a truthful answer, which we've already covered in point one, you're supposed to get a truthful answer, you might be surprised at how your words sound to others.
Your words are more powerful than you think. The effect that your words have on others will last longer than you think. So don't speak your words in anger. Speak the truth, always, but speak it peacefully. And if you can call to your mind a time when you've sinned in anger with your words against someone here at this church, uh, you know, and you haven't gone back and made that right, then let me please encourage and exhort you, do it. Do that. Make it right. Our passage this morning says that our unity as a church body depends upon that. Whether that's your children, if you sinned against your kids in anger, make that right. Don't just ignore that. Or whether it's one of your brothers and sisters here in this congregation, if you don't make it right, this is what this passage says, if we sin against each other in anger and then we don't go back and make it right, it says we're giving the devil a foothold. That's the phrase there. Giving the devil a foothold. I, when, I th- when I think about that, that image of you know, giving the devil, I mean, that's a dramatic image, right? I picture a wall, right? A fo- you, need, you need a wall to have footholds. In the, but Sylvia, my daughter, has been taking rock climbing lessons over the past few weeks. And so if you've seen those rock walls, right, it's like this, it's like this fake wall that's built up, and then there's like these spots to grab on, and you, you can grab a handle, and you can put your foot on it, and you pull yourself up the wall, right? That's, that's rock wall climbing. And so you can only do that if there's footholds all over the wall. It's a special wall built like that, right? You you can't climb that wall without the footholds. And what this passage is saying is that when we sin against each other with our words, and then we don't go back and make it right. Now, look, we're going to sin against each other with our words. We just know that. We're human beings. But the thing is, when it happens... We need to go back and make it right. And if we don't, we're giving the devil a foothold. And so the picture is the devil is trying to climb up the wall that's around our church. And the more that we sin with our words and don't forgive one another, we're giving him foothold so that he can climb the wall and get over it and get in here and do all sorts of damage. And so what we want here is smooth walls. Smooth walls surrounding our church. And the way that we get smooth walls with no footholds for the devil is not by never sinning, because we will, But when we do, to confess it, repent of it, and forgive one another, that'll keep our walls smooth, and that'll keep us from giving the devil a foothold. Okay. Use your words truthfully. Use your words peacefully. Final, Final one. Use your words constructively. Verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. That's our standard. Only ever let words out of your mouth or words out of your keyboard or words out of your phone that will build others up and be a means of grace to them. Think about that. God is willing to use your words as a means of grace to build up the people you're speaking to. How's that work? That's pretty simple, really. You don't, have to, you don't have to spout profound and deep and wise things all the time. Anyone can do this. Everyone should do this. It simply involves taking the time to speak a word of encouragement to someone who needs to hear it. A word of comfort to someone who's hurting. 
Maybe a little short, encouraging handwritten note tucked into someone's mailbox. Taking the time to point out an evidence of grace in someone's life. Just saying, hey, you know what? I see God at work in you in this way, and you know what? It's beautiful. Or just reminding someone of of God's promises at a time when they need to be reminded of that. Do you know people who are really gifted at this? I do. Here at this church, we have some people who are really, really good and gifted at this, and it's beautiful. Uh, when, I, when I think of one person who is especially gifted at this, and I bet others in this room are thinking of this person right now, it's Margaret. Margaret was remarkably gifted at using her words this way, right? She was constantly sending handwritten notes and sending out texts. I've had so many conversations with people since her passing who have been blessed by Margaret in that specific way. When I was speaking with Margaret's family, um, planning the celebration of life service, we were all gathered, we were in Jim's living room, and I was speaking to them, and, and I likened Margaret's life and her impact to the biblical character Dorcas. Dorcas has probably the most unfortunate biblical name, but her life is amazing. Do you remember the, do you remember the story of Dorcas? It's from Acts chapter 9. And do you remember this scene? Dorcas has died. And in the passage, she is described as having been full of good works and acts of charity. And the whole town is mourning because Dorcas has died. And so Peter gets there, and he goes to the room where the body is. And then we read this. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. Margaret was like that. But instead of garments, knitting garments and giving them away, she she gave out kind words to people, right? Notes and texts and, and, and words. She gave, she gave those away, and we, we carried those words around with us. What a beautiful legacy. She was like a, like a, to change the metaphor a little bit, she was like a brick mason, using her words as bricks to build other people up. That's how God can use us to be a means of grace. Every time you speak to someone, your words either have the potential to build them up, to be another brick, to be a means of grace, or your words can tear them down, pulling bricks away from them and making them feel diminished. And the question this morning is, how are you going to choose to use your words? And let's keep in mind, let's be realistic. All of that is easy to do when the other person is cooperating, right? I have no problem speaking peacefully to my kids when they're obeying, right? I'm I'm such a pleasant dad to be around when my kids are obeying. I have no problem sending nice emails to people who send me nice emails. It's just lovely. We just send back and forth these lovely emails. I can be a very pleasant customer in a store when I feel like I'm getting very good customer service. It's great. But what are my words going to look like towards my kids when my kids are blatantly disobeying? See, that's the challenge. What are my emails going to sound like when I'm responding to a message that I think was unkind. What sort of voice do I use when the customer service stinks? You know, kids use this excuse all the time, right? He started it, right? 
kids are like masters at that, like as if that exonerates anything they ever did. Well, he started, well, okay then. If he started it, then go for it, right? No parent says that. We know that that's not a good excuse. He started it. And yet adults use that excuse all the time. We just don't say it. But we think it, right? He started it. He, he said the mean thing first. I'm just responding to his mean thing, right? That's not a good excuse. That's a childhood's excuse. And we don't accept it from our children. And we shouldn't use it as adults. It doesn't matter who started it. I'll close with one real-life example that can help us to respond with grace and forgiveness and retaliating with our words when people sin against us. Or when we think they've sinned. Sometimes we, you think someone's sinned against you and they haven't even. You're just misunderstanding their words. But even if, let's just say, that they have, it's still not okay to retaliate. So here's an example. Here's something that I find inspiring to help me. It's a story of Gladys Staines. She was a missionary in India. She and her husband, they had three children, and they were missionaries in India. On January 23, 1999, her husband Graham and her two sons, they were aged 8 and 10, were asleep in a vehicle in a remote village. That night, a group of militants doused the car in gasoline, lit it on fire, and then prevented the dad and the boys from getting out of the car, and the three of them died. You may have heard that story. It made the news when it happened. When Gladys heard the news, she immediately turned to her daughter and said, we'll forgive them, won't we? And the daughter said immediately, yes, mommy, we will. And they did. They forgave the men who burned their dad and husband and brothers to death. Now, sometime later, somebody approached Gladys' daughter, and the person was genuinely confused. Maybe you're feeling confused right now. And said to the daughter, not in a mean way, just in a confused way, I can't understand how you forgave those people. I don't get it. The daughter went home that night and was genuinely confused herself and said to her mom, Mom, I can't understand how they can't understand why we've forgiven those men. See, there was such a culture of grace in Gladys and Graham Stain's household that had so deeply infected their children that it was inconceivable to the daughter that you wouldn't forgive someone who sinned against you. Of course you would forgive them. That's what Christians do. They forgive people. Now that, to me, is an amazing testimony of the power of grace. Right? The, the, the impulse, the instinct is towards grace and towards forgiveness, not towards vengeance or bitterness. Where does the power like that come from? Well, I'll let Gladys explain it in her own words. This is an article that she wrote after the murder of her husband and sons. She wrote this, Forgiveness brings healing. It allows the other person a chance to start afresh. And if I have something against you and I forgive you, then the bitterness leaves me. Forgiveness liberates both the forgiver and the forgiven. So how was I able to forgive? The truth is that I myself am a sinner. I needed Jesus to forgive me, and because I have Jesus in my life, it is possible for me to forgive others. Now, that response is really the embodiment of the words of verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God has forgiven you. That is a woman who has been 
kissed by the grace of God. And because of that, she does not retaliate when she's wrong, she forgives. And she uses her words not to tear down, but as a means of grace. And by God's grace, she has now passed that legacy on to her daughter. And by God's grace, that is how you and I should be using our words, truthfully, peacefully, and constructively. Let's pray together. Holy Father, thank you for the gift of language, communication, words. Uh, we take those things for granted because they're such an embedded part of our lives and society. But it's a gift. You didn't have to make it so that we could communicate with words. You didn't have to communicate to us with words, but you have. You've given us this gift, and this gift comes with great responsibility. And so I pray that you would help us to use this gift of of language, of communication, to use it in a way that, that honors you, that glorifies Christ, and that builds one another up. And I pray that if in the moments when we are tempted to use our words as a weapon, to use our words to retaliate or exact revenge, I pray that you would stop us and close our mouth and, and, and stop our hands from typing. That you would give us a a strong filter, and that all the words that we use would run through the filter of grace so that they would be used to build up and bless and not tear down. In Christ's name, amen. Invite the worship team back up.